The reading of God's word comes to us from Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, we'll read verses 10 through 19. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter upon the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do, do not go on in it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. During in prayers, we ask God's blessing upon his word read and preached. O infinite and eternal God, who spoke the beginning of all things and brought forth life and light, bestowing such a rich set of gifts and adorning this creation with good and declaring by that word that it was very good. That we now enjoy your word as your children, seeing the immeasurable wisdom and power and goodness on display in creation and knowing the depths of rich and mercy opened up to us in redemption. We marvel that you speak. And so we ask that you would make us hear. Make us to hear, O oh Lord, your word. You, our maker, our redeemer. Open our hearts. Prepare our hearts like that field, Lord. And sow your word. This alone you can do. And we ask that you would do it. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Continuing our time with the first commandment. Read Exodus 20, verse 3. This is the word of God. You shall have no other gods before me. Thus ends the reading of God's word. We'll read 45 and 46. This will be our last evening reflecting on what is required in the first commandment. Question 45, what, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What is required in the first commandment? The first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him authority. So we're continuing to ask, what does God call us to in the first commandment? 
such a simple set of words, and yet if you read the exposition in the larger and the shorter catechism, it opens them up to unveil riches. And we said it's a basic call to know and to acknowledge the true and living God as your God. We said that more specifically, this meant we're called to yield all that we are and all that we have to him. We're called to know and acknowledge him believing and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're called to contemplate and to remember and to fear our God above all powers in heaven and on earth. This evening, we'll consider three further groups of calls contained in this first commandment, to have no other gods, or positively to know and to acknowledge the true and living God. This commandment first calls us to believe, to trust, and to hope in him. This commandment second calls us to call upon him and to give thanks to him. And then third, this commandment calls us to be careful to please him and to sorrow when we grieve him. And so first, this first commandment calls us to believe, to trust, and to hope in him. These three are all very closely related. I don't know if you've ever sat down and tried to parse where faith ends and trust begins and hope begins. But they're distinct. We see them distinctly set forth in Scripture. Exodus 14, 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then Isaiah 26, 4. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And then Psalm 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Those are all different words. They're not the same word, just rendered differently in the English. They're all distinct calls to Israel. So first, you're called to believe him or have faith in him. Scripture uses faith, belief, in several distinct senses. It can be used specifically or narrowly for that act of receiving and resting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord and you will be saved, you and your household. But it can also be used more generally, more broadly, as accepting as true whatever God says and acting in accord with it. You'll find these senses distinguished in the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter on saving faith. More than just believing and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole counsel of God is to be believed and accepted, acknowledged as true because it proceeds from God himself, the one who is truth. And that's close to the sense that we get in Exodus 14. This is kind of a remarkable series of events. The question burning throughout the early chapters of Exodus is just as much, will God's people believe in him as it is, will Pharaoh let God's people go? <laughs> 
Will God's people believe that God has spoken? Will God's people believe that he is who he says he is through his servant Moses? You heard that. They did believe. But it took some doing, didn't it? That's Moses' concern. He's like, they're not going to believe me. What if they don't believe that you sent me? So what does the Lord do? He gives him signs. He says, take your staff. He says, put your hand in your cloak. He says, take a cup, pour out some of the water of the Nile. He's like, they'll believe you then. For the Lord always verifies his servants by these signs and wonders. They did believe, but it took some doing, and the faith was short-lived. So there's a little bit of irony, I think, at the end of Exodus 14, when the Red Sea has just swallowed Pharaoh's army. And it concludes, and they believed in the Lord <laughs> and in his servant Moses. Well, I should hope so. <laughs> Egypt is at the bottom of a sea. And you walked through on dry land. We have ample reason to believe. If Israel had God's word attested with signs and wonders, attending the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, attending their life in Israel and being planted in the land, being told of what the prophets were going what the prophets called for, being told what God was going to do, being sent into exile, being regathered from exile, being told that the Messiah was going to come, and then having the Messiah come. Much has verified God's word. If Israel was without excuse for not believing Moses and the prophets, how much less excuse do we have? Not to believe the God who in these last days has spoken through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and confirmed his word in raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand. The first commandment calls us to believe everything that God says. Second, you're called to trust him. Trust is similar to faith, but it's a more specific act of faith, namely in taking comfort and finding confidence in the Lord and in his promise, particularly in present distress. The situation in Isaiah 26, which I read earlier, is a classic contrast. Those who trust in cities, armies, wealth, supposedly untoppable regimes, they're brought to nothing. <laughs> but those who trust in the Lord are preserved. And not just preserved, but kept in perfect peace. For he alone is a sure refuge. Princes come and go. In them is the same breath of life that's in you and me. Cities rise and fall. Wealth takes wings and flies away, as Proverbs says. Armies have all been beaten, all fail, but not the Lord. And not those who trust in him. Scripture constantly uses the image of God as refuge. God as shield. God as high tower. God as fortified city. 
You could translate those images to the Midwest. God is a storm shelter. Remember noticing my grandmother's old house doors that were in the ground. As a child, I couldn't get my mind around this. Where did the doors lead, Grandma? They're in the ground. <laughs> they lead to a storm shelter. In case of a tornado, we head for the shelter, the refuge. Where do you run when trouble comes? What do you look to for comfort, confidence, when the soul is stirred up, ill at ease, incapable of finding rest? What you run to is what you trust. The first commandment calls us to trust in God, to take comfort and great confidence in his word. In his promises, in the demonstration everywhere in Scripture, everywhere in the pages of history, that he is trustworthy, <laughs> that he has never failed, that not one of his promises has fallen void. All of this has been verified to us in full in the Lord Jesus Christ who sets himself forth as our unfailing comfort and confidence that even the day of trouble that comes to us at death will only be another occasion to prove that he is a sure refuge for his people, such that we are even ferried safely through death itself. Third, you're called to hope in him. Hope is similar to faith, but it has specific reference to the future. Hope expects good beyond the dark present. Solely because of God's word and promise. Not because one can glimpse some flicker of hope in the situation. The situation itself is darkness, but intruded into the state of darkness is God's word of comfort, God's word of promise, and the soul clinging to this has good hope. The image of Psalm 130 is very instructive. Verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. I rather like that desperation that's infused with the repetition there. Because it feels like that. If you've ever been in the thick of night, in the thick of the shadow of death, perhaps writhing in agony, maybe over kidney stones, <laughs> wondering if the pain was ever going to give up, <clears throat> having nothing in the midst of the experience to cling to that would suggest that it was going to stop, but knowing that our God has given us good hope, <laughs> that even if an unbroken sequence of 
pain were to attend the rest of our days, eventually the dark night of pain would give way to the morning of incorruptible and unfading life. Those aren't empty promises. Those aren't platitudes. It's grappling with the substance of true hope. The image of the watchman waiting for the morning is instructive. Night is full of danger, full of threat. There's no light to be found in it. And so what does the watchman hope for? The coming of light and its classic image of hope. Christian, you have good hope. That's a timely word for us because things feel dark, don't they? The darkness feels thick and it feels like it's swelling, seething. But we are children of the day. <laughs> We're children of hope. What is your hope, church? What is your confidence that the future is one not of darkness conquering, but one in the final analysis wherein light will be all in all for the glory of God will fill all in all such that not even sun, moon, or stars are necessary? Well, what does Scripture say? Peter writes in what might reasonably be called the epistle of hope, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is full of hope because we serve the king who has conquered death. The Christian life is full of hope because we serve the king who is the light of the world that the darkness hath not overcome. The Christian life is full of hope because he says he's coming back for his bride and not one of his words can fall void because he is the truth. You have a good hope. <laughs> and the wonder of hope is that even though everything is darkness around you, you live in the light that the hope brings, not the lightlessness of the circumstances. Mm. Christian, hope in God, mm. trust in God, believe in God. Next, the first commandment calls us to call upon God and give him thanks. Mm. That was the first group. Believe, trust, hope, if you're taking notes. Group two, call upon him and give him thanks. To have no other gods is to call upon the true God in seasons of pain and in seasons of abundance. That's what Paul says, Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm always amazed that he wrote that from prison. Given how bent out of shape I get when things don't go well. (laughs) Paul is telling a congregation in in which it's going largely well from prison. Hey, guys, it's fine. (laughs) Everything's okay. The Lord hears your prayers. There are many cares which attend our hearts and minds. Mark them real quick. What are the cares attending your hearts and minds? That's what the word means, to be anxious. When they inevitably call me for the next translation that they'll put out, nobody's going to call me. (laughs) I'll recommend against this word anxiety because it's taken on all new layers of meaning in our current moment, which is very interested in mental health. Because the word means... uh, to give excessive attention to, or to have undue or um, disproportionate concern for something. The King James Version translates it to give thought to, which is in the right direction but doesn't say enough. It's not just thinking about something. It's having undue concern for something. Having a legitimate care becomes something which destabilizes, which becomes deeply troubling and consuming. Now, the Lord teaches about all sorts of legitimate concerns which so easily become undue concerns. Food, clothing, shelter, the future, threats to our lives and the lives of our loved ones. Paul's instruction assumes all these cares. He assumes these cares are going to attend us all of our days. But then he directs us how we are to channel this restless and constantly burdened heart unto our God and Father. By calling upon him. By seeking these things from him. Now, Scripture everywhere assures us that God knows we need these things. (laughs) He made you. He knows you need food. He knows the frailty of the human frame, which needs clothing, shelter, He knows the frailty of the human life that can be snuffed out in an instant. He knows the love you have for your children and the very real fear you feel as you see trajectories unfolding that are legitimately scary. And the thought of sending them out into that world does leave a parent with concern. (laughs) He knows. He knows. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He upholds all things, sustains all things. He causes empires to rise and empires to fall. He's designed you down to the particularities of your hair. He knows you have these concerns. And Jesus everywhere teaches 
that he is a good heavenly father. <laughs> Even uses this image of earthly fathers to put our hearts at rest that we don't find much rest, do we? He says, look, you are evil. He really tells it how it is. <laughs> You're evil. And even you don't turn away your children when they need these things. And you're evil. <laughs> your heavenly father is perfect. He's good beyond all telling. He gives good to people who hate him. Let alone those who have been given a heart to love him. <laughs> he knows your needs. Seek these things from his hands. Take these cares of yours to him, confident that not only does he hear you, but he delights when you come to him as father bearing, not just the cares of your heart, but even the undue concerns of your heart before him in grace. And notice the good instruction that Paul adds to this. I would encourage you if you find yourself burdened unduly by the cares that attend this life. He says, make your requests with thanksgiving. Now, why does he do that? Why does he say, attend these requests, these supplications with thanksgiving? Because isn't the heart of anxiety a sneaking suspicion that God either cannot or will not supply us with good? What we need, isn't that at the heart of anxiety? That he either can't bring about good or he won't bring about good. But to approach God with a heart of thanksgiving, it brings before him, and more importantly, it brings before us the testimony of his own faithfulness in this regard. It rehearses all of the good that he has done you. Not only to glorify him, but to show to your fickle heart that he does not withhold good from you. <laughs> that he gives it and gives it in abundance. Tell me, Christian, do you have reason to give thanks? Any reason at all to give thanks? I suspect that you do. Bring those thanksgivings before your father as you bring your cares before him and find an unexpected balm in an intimate attestation of his goodness and faithfulness on display in the particulars of your life lived before him. Psalm 103.2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals your diseases who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satiates you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He's forgiven you your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has healed you of your deadly disease of sin, which led to death and worse beside. He has raised you up from the pit with the Lord Jesus Christ and has seated you with him in the heavenly places. He has opened unto you unfathomable mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have tasted indeed that the Lord is good. Blessings all yours and 10,000 besides. Cast all your cares upon him. 
with thanksgiving and know that he cares for you. The first commandment calls us to call upon God and to thank him in all of our circumstances. And last, the first commandment calls us to be careful to please him and to sorrow when we grieve him. As a parent, I am continually struck by the instinctive delight that children experience when they know that they've pleased the father. Have you found this to be true? Children light up when they hear well done from their parents. Have you seen this? There's a joy that fills them at that like nothing else, perhaps. And then conversely, they wither when they find themselves under the father's frown. Displeasure, do they not? Our relationship to our heavenly father invites us to consider this aspect of our Christian lives. And it's a delicate one, but it's one that scripture plainly teaches. 1 John 3.22 We keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he commanded us. Now, what is John saying here? He's saying that as God's children, as those whom God in his wondrous love has called children, as those for whom Christ has died and made full atonement for sin, who have been established as those in whom the Father is pleased because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now understand this position as children to open up to us this new desire, this new aim to be found walking in a manner pleasing to our God, in faith and in love, just as John says. And the well-worn image of the parent's delight in the child's first step is good and true. Maybe you can remember it. Do you remember when your children took their first steps? They were not very secure steps. <laughs> But they were delightful. I received videos from every one of my siblings watching their children walk for the first time, attesting to this pure delight that parents take in seeing their children walk. The image of walking by faith as newborn children in the Lord, stumbling, unsteady though it be. <laughs> Scripture invites us to see the Lord's pleasure in these faith-fueled steps, which come forth from hearts which have been born from above. John has no delusions about perfectionism in this life. Read chapter 1 of 1 John. He's plain, you're going to be confessing your sin your whole life. 
You're going to be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness all your days, indeed, all the days of the church, as long as the Lord tarries. But the life of the Christian is presented as unfolding in the family of God, wherein the Father is actively delighting in children who walk by faith in the Son, who loved us and gave himself for us, and who more and more are reflecting that beautiful life of the Son, which is characterized by love. It pleases him when we walk in this way. Don't lose that dimension that we can please the Father through Christ. That Christ is offering our lives as acceptable sacrifices to the Father. That is a powerful coordinate. In one way, this is just so simple, isn't it? Is God pleased when someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes! <laughs> this should not be difficult to say. We're told that there's more joy in heaven when a single sinner repents. He is pleased as we walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John is plain as day. We do what pleases him when we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And how about your love for your brothers and sisters in the church? Is he pleased as you exercise your faith in the son heeding his call to you to love these particular difficult sheep? You particular difficult sheep? Yes, he's pleased, and that's beautiful. That's exactly what John says. We do what pleases him when we love abstract man. No, each other. <laughs> when we love one another, why? For in this way, we walk as Christ walked, who gave his life for us in love. Now, I assure you, your love does not make you a substitutionary atonement for anyone. But your love, exercised in faith, pleases the Father. It's right there. It's so plain. Now, we can say much about the mystery of how it is. It's God who works in us to do his good pleasure. And at the same time, it's an authentic acting of the new heart which pleases God. There's a mystery there, I assure you. But don't lose that simple childlike dimension that as God's children... In the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in faith, we're found doing that which pleases God. That's a powerful word. But it also means that the opposite is true, namely that we're called to grieve when we offend him. Psalm 119, 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. There's many reasonable responses to sin in the world. 
but perhaps one that is underappreciated and undercultivated is genuine sorrow. It's not our instinct, is it? Anger is our instinct. Disgust is our instinct. Disbelief is our instinct. You think of Jonah's response when God calls him to go to Nineveh. The end of the book of Jonah is probably one of the best surprise twist endings in all of literature. Jonah flees when God calls him to go to Nineveh, and you think, well, sure, Nineveh is awful. <laughs> that call's going to cost him his life. That'd be a terrifying job. No wonder he runs. But God finally gets his man, and Jonah goes. And only at the very end of the book do you learn why Jonah didn't want to go. And it wasn't because Nineveh was awful and he was afraid he was going to lose his life. It was because Nineveh was awful and he knew God was going to be merciful. That's a twist ending. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> That's not cowardice. That's callousness. But what does God say? He says, look at this place. Over a hundred thousand people who don't know their right hand from their left. It's pitiable. It's heartbreaking. Jonah, why aren't you heartbroken? Mm -hmm. Why are you angry? <laughs> My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And the Westminster Assembly understood this verse as plainly indicating that we shed tears over our own inability to keep God's law. That we genuinely sorrow, first and foremost, over our sin. Whose sin was worse, Nineveh's or Jonah's? Scripture's plain on that too. It's Jonah's. It's terribly sad how little mercy I muster as one who has received incomprehensible mercy. It's terribly sad how slow I am to believe, to trust, and to hope in God, even though he has proved himself over and over and over again, not just in my life, but in the life of every one of his people, and indeed his people as a whole, from the beginning of time. It's terribly sad that I'm so slow to call upon in his name in faith when trouble comes and that I'm so quick to turn to other solutions, which are really no solutions at all. It's terribly sad that I take so little notice of the vast blessings that attend me day by day as his beloved child and yield thanks to him so infrequently and so half-heartedly. The command to have no other gods is the command to sorrow aright over the ongoing state of my heart. But take heart, because the Lord Jesus Christ himself teaches, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn this sad state of the heart, for they will be comforted. There's a sense in which this sorrow is to tend our hearts all our days in this sad world. And God's promise works even this sorrow for good as it brings about humility. It 
brings about tenderness, compassion, kindness, understanding to a world that is really just my heart writ large, unchecked, left to itself. <laughs> Christ himself teaches that every day we pray, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. That understanding of forgiveness and mercy informing how we forgive and extend mercy. It's encapsulated so perfectly in that. Displeased with ourselves, we earnestly seek the pardon that God has promised. The pardon that he assures us he delights to give. Displeased with ourselves, we find it easier and easier to forgive others as they're engaged with the same struggle that we are. So ends the three specific groups of calls. He calls us to believe, trust, and hope in him. He calls us to call upon him and thank him. And he calls us to aim to please him in everything and grieve when we offend him. And in closing, we can marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ, can we not? Who trusted his Father even when the world was turned to darkest night. Who hoped in him even in the midst of the inky blackness of man's sin writ large. And mark if he was not delivered from death as he trusted the one who makes all things. Marvel at our Lord Jesus Christ, who constantly called out to his heavenly Father and thanked him for all things which attended his life. Marvel that our Lord only ever did what pleased the Father. And though he had no reasons to sorrow over his own sins, in great compassion and tenderness, he still sorrowed over the sins of men, weeping at the hardness of heart that he everywhere saw on display. Indeed, so tender was his compassion that he stood in the stead of sinners, though he had no sin of his own. But also give thanks. Give thanks if there is any faith, any trust, any hope for the heart of flesh does not muster those things and so if they are present know that it is a work of heaven a work of grace a work of your heavenly father give thanks if there's any calling upon him in the difficulties of life for the flesh only ever turns away from god in the midst of difficulty it is the work of grace that difficulty is the occasion for drawing near. Give thanks that there is an earnest new desire to please him for prior to grace you only ever asked, how can I please myself? And now, however faint a question it may be in your soul, it is truly present that we are asking, how? How do we walk in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father who has given us every good thing? And last, seek the grace to trust Him more. Let your daily prayer be, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Let your daily prayer be, Lord, teach us to pray. 
Let your daily prayer be, Lord, lead me in paths of righteousness for thy name's sake. Daily let our prayer be, teach me to rend my heart and not my garments over sin, and grant me a heart of mercy towards those who do not know their right hand from their left. For such was the state in which you found me, and in which mercy came unto me, to the praise of your glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Grant to us a greater portion of faith, hope, and love. Continue to exalt the beloved Son as the one who yielded his life of perfect obedience as a ransom for sinner and teaches us now to walk in this way of life, empowered by the Spirit whom he has poured out. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.